I'd ask that you'd find your seats and take God's word in your hands and turn to the book of Mark. We continue in our series that we've entitled Man at Work, uh, learning how the Son of Man has paved the way uh, to God through this uh, study of the entire book of Mark. And we find ourselves uh, in Mark chapter 1, and we're going to be looking at verses 16 uh, through 39. So I'd ask that you would turn there, Mark chapter 1. Verses 16 through 39, and to give you just an um, overview of uh, what we've uh, engaged in in this uh, first part of this journey, as we have seen John the Baptist come onto the scene and be the forerunner, the one who would announce the, uh, uh, the coming of the Lord and prepare the way and to announce a time of repentance and confession uh, to the people of Israel to prepare for the long awaited Messiah. Jesus comes onto the scene. Uh, very quickly in this book, and we see that uh, uh, he comes to the Jordan to be baptized, and of course the glorious um, occurrence that takes place is that Jesus, as he's baptized, God the Father affirms and acknowledges that this is his son whom he loves, whom he's well pleased with, and then it tells us immediately that Jesus is uh, sent out to uh, the desert to be tempted uh, by the devil, and that's where we finished up our study uh, this uh, last week. And this week we look at a day in the life of Jesus, looking at verses 16 through 39. So hopefully you've gotten there this morning. I'm going to have a a stand for the reading of God's word as we look at, at a day in the life of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. It says the following, as Jesus walked beside the Sea of Galilee, he saw Simon and his brother Andrew casting a net into the lake, for they were fishermen. Come, follow me, Jesus said, and I will make you fishers of men. At once they left their nets and followed him. When he had gone a little farther, he saw James, son of Zebedee, and his brother John in a boat, preparing their nets. Without delay, he called them, and they left their father Zebedee in the boat and with the hired men and followed him. They went to Capernaum, and when the Sabbath came, Jesus went into the synagogue and began to teach The people were amazed at his teaching because he taught as one who had authority, not as one of the teachers of the law. Just then, a man in their their synagogue who was possessed by an evil spirit cried out, What do you want with us, Jesus of Nazareth? Have you come to destroy us? I know who you are, the Holy One of God. Be quiet, Jesus said sternly. Come out of him. The evil spirit shook the man violently and came out of him with a shriek. The people were all amazed. They asked each other, What is this, a new teaching? And with authority. He even gives orders to the evil spirits, and they obey him. News about him spread quickly over the whole region of Galilee. As soon as they left the synagogue, they went with James and John to the house of Simon and Andrew. Simon's mother-in-law was in bed with a fever, and they told Jesus about her. So he went to her took her hand and helped her up. The fever left her, and she began to wait on them. That evening after sunset, the people brought to Jesus all the sick and demon-possessed. The whole town gathered at the door, and Jesus healed many who had various diseases. He also drove out many demons. But he would not let the demons speak, because they knew who he was. Very early in the morning, while it was still dark, Jesus got up. He left the house and went off to a solitary place where he prayed. Simon and his companions went to look for him, 
And when they found him, they exclaimed, Everyone is looking for you. Jesus replied, Let us go somewhere else, to the nearby villages, so that I can preach there also. That is why I have come. So he traveled throughout Galilee, preaching in their synagogues and driving out demons. Let's pray. Father God, we come before you and we come from a variety of of places, a variety of weeks. And yet, Lord, we come as followers of yours to hear from you this morning. We've come around your table to commune with you in this body of believers. And now, Lord, we center our thoughts on your word. Lord, this week we get a synopsis of what a day in the life of your son might have looked like. Lord, I pray that as we look at your son's daily activities, that we would look at our own. We would recognize, if many are like me, that the things that you occupied your time with are things that never are part of my schedule. Lord, I pray that you would change that this morning. Give us the power through the Holy Spirit to make the needed changes in our lives so that we can not just say that we are followers of you, but that we can walk in the footsteps each and every day that would follow our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Lord, I ask a special blessing on me this morning. You know I'm hurting and uh, just really struggling this morning with the task of, of preaching. And so, Lord, I just pray that you would Touch me this morning, for I need it so very much. And Lord, I pray that everything that is said will bring just glory and honor to your name. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. You may be seated. There's a recent and new phenomenon that has has taken over. It started uh, about 15 years ago, and now it has infiltrated much of our entertainment. And it is that of the reality show. Uh, The first reality show that we know of uh, was The Real World that started in 1992, looking at a group of individuals who were living uh, in a neighborhood and in a house together and and going through the daily activities. And when it first came out, many people said, who would want to watch people living life? And they were probably true and right because it only seemed to impact the younger generation of people. But about seven years ago, a new set of reality shows began uh, to crop up and began to really take hold of our entertainment and our TV watching. Uh, Wikipedia describes this reality show epidemic in this way. Reality television is a genre of television programming that presents purportedly unscripted, dramatic or humorous situations, documents, and actual events usually involving ordinary people instead of professional actors, sometimes having a contest or another situation where a prize may be awarded. Some of our most popular TV programs today are reality shows. Reality shows that center on who will be the biggest loser, Who is going to get voted off the island? Who will be the next American Idol? Or the next top chef? Or the next top model? We've seen the ups and downs of John and Kate plus eight raise their children. And we've seen the Duggars know how to keep having them. We have seen and watched the story of people try to flip homes for fast money. 
We have watched a heavy metal rocker, Brett Michaels, try to find a date. America watched the newlyweds of Nick and Jessica as they endured the first years of marriage and then a subsequent divorce. And for some reason, we as Americans want to keep up with the Kardashians or get to know the real wives of Jersey Shore. Experts wonder if this is a lasting trend. Will this be something that we will be watching for years to come? Or will we become bored with, as I would like to say, the unreal reality of reality TV? Because as I've watched, and I don't watch a lot of of these shows, they don't appeal to me all that much, but they don't seem very real. That's not how the Badals live. Maybe that's good or maybe that's bad. But we come to a text this morning without being too trite and, 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 and playful with the terminology that Mark, it's amazing, he gives 16 chapters of, of, of just constant action. And we get just little blurbs of what Jesus and, and his disciples are doing and, and 16 chapters of that, except for this passage before us. It seems that on this uh, 36 to possibly 48 hours of time, Mark devotes almost an entire chapter to that short season of time. Why does he do that? Now, we could break this passage down, and there is tons that we could get out of it. But as the preaching team worked together with this passage, we said, we're going to keep this long passage together. It's probably the longest passage that we will deal with in this series. But we wanted to keep it together because it is here that we learn how Jesus lived in everyday life. In essence, we are seeing the reality show of Jesus. Keeping up with Jesus, what did he do with his day? How did he occupy his time? And as I said in my prayer, uh, it is not the same way that many times we do it. And so we have been given a glimpse by the writer Mark, as if there was a camera following Jesus. What did he say? What did he do? How did he respond to the planned events of time and life? What did he do with the unplanned events and occurrences? And there are three things that I want to pull out this morning with the time that I have this morning. And that is as we watch Jesus and we live a day with him, the first thing that we see is that Jesus invested in potential partners. Now I want to make something very clear this morning. There was no potentiality, if you will, to Jesus's calling of the disciples. But I use that because that will be part of the application about our potentiality as disciples of Jesus. And so there was no chance. There was no wondering, I'm going to pick James and John. I wonder if they're going to work out. Jesus knew exactly the beginning from the end and the end from the beginning. And he knew who he was choosing and he knew why he was choosing them. But please give me some uh, poetic license this morning with that first point. The first thing that we see, we come to the text in verses uh, 16 uh, through 19. And we have the calling of the first disciples. Again, Mark doesn't give us a lot of information. If we want to have more information on those given texts, we're going to have to go to the other gospel writers who are going to share more about it. But here's the scene. The text tells us that Jesus is walking uh, on, on the shores of the Sea of Galilee. 
It was a common scene uh, to walk those shores to see fishermen docked on the shore, working on their boats, mending their nets, uh, bringing in the catch uh, from the uh, late night uh, fishing that was done the night before, taking the fish and getting ready to get them to market. It was within this background, if you will, this scene that we see Jesus call the first of his four disciples. We know that Jesus would call 12 in total. But he starts with the four. And we see within this that we have some understanding, if you will, from the other gospels that these men had known of Jesus. And so right away, if we were to read Mark's gospel, it would be as if you went to the jewel this afternoon after church and you walked into the produce section and you saw someone that you had never met before and you said, hey, come, follow me. I will make you producers of men. And the guy says, okay, sounds like a plan. Let's go. And immediately they follow you. That's probably not what happened. And we need to be careful that we don't create this scene that, that it becomes almost a fairy tale. We know that Jesus, it says in verse 14 and 15, that after John was put into prison, Jesus went into Galilee. That's the region that they're in. And he proclaimed the good news of God. The time has come, he said. The kingdom of God is near. Repent and believe the good news. Now, most scholars believe that these four disciples had heard Jesus preach. And they had probably inevitably uh, either been somewhat uh, understanding of the ministry that John had had before that. But at minimum, they had heard Jesus preach and had given their life to this kingdom ministry, this kingdom work. Uh, of the coming Messiah and the one who would bring forth the, the prophetic fulfillment or the, the fulfillment of the prophetic uh, messages that the prophets had brought forth in the Old Testament. So Luke tells us that here we are on the shore. I'm sorry, not Luke. Uh, Mark tells us that uh, Jesus is on the shore and he calls these men. But the question I have this morning is what allowed these men to be so obedient Even if they had had some encounters with Jesus, it is still an amazing fact that they would drop their nets and they would follow Jesus. And if they were able to do it, then the question I have for myself is how can I position myself to be the kind of disciple that when Jesus comes walking by me and he says, Tim, I want you to follow me. I want to make you a fisher of men that I'm ready to do it. And I think there are four attributes that we see in this text with the little that Mark gives us that I think will make us ready. And to be able to do that, we need to be people who are fast. We need to be people who are fast. And what I mean by that isn't the ability of your legs to move you in a particular direction quickly, But what I mean is that there are four attributes that are needed. And the first one is that you need to be faithful. You need to be faithful. Now, this may seem very basic to you, but I see in the text that these men, the four that were called all, were faithful to the job that they were doing. Jesus found them working. Now you say, Tim, well, of course, they have to work, they have to provide for their families, they need something to do during the day. But I might add that the faithfulness that is seen is they are busy working, mending their nets, and doing the job to get 
the job done. And Jesus understood and knew that the people that he was going to need were going to be people who were going to need to get the job done. That when trials and troubles came, that they would encounter all of the difficulties, that they would be people that would be able to make that happen. Fishermen were the right types of people. They encountered all kinds of trouble. They encountered all kinds of danger. It was hard work to be a fisherman. And Jesus picked the right four guys because they understood what hard work was and they took the hard work that they had in their jobs and they would then move it into their life as disciples in ministry. Now the question I have for you this morning is, are you faithful? Jesus calls us all to be his disciples. And some of you are desiring to have a bigger and greater role and opportunity in ministry. And I ask you this morning, are you faithful in the little things? If we were to go to your bosses and ask the question, is so-and-so a faithful employee? Is so-and-so hardworking? Is so-and-so willing to get the job done and to do what it takes to make that happen? Would they approve in the affirmation of that and say, yes, yes, they are. We are by nature a lazy people. And we think that things will be done for us. And sadly, many of us lose out on the opportunity to serve God because we are faithless in the small things. There are men who desire to be elders, but they are faithless in their ability to manage their household. And Paul says, how can a man manage the household of God when he does not manage his own household well? You see, we have to be faithful in the smaller things if we desire for God to use us in the greater things. And so there is a real spirituality, if you will, to our job performance and to us being the faithful people in the secular things, if you will, of the world. That's what we talked about in that series on stewardship, that every inch of our lives should be lived as stewards to God. And the reason why is God is looking at our life and he's saying, have you been faithful with the small things? The scripture says, so that I can make you faithful and responsible for the greater things. Notice the second thing that comes. We need to be available. We need to be available. Notice it says that these guys were available. It doesn't say that in those words, but notice Jesus calls them. And it says at once in some translations. In others, it's the very uh, famous key word of, of the book of Mark that will be used over 40 times. Immediately, they leave their nets, they leave their father, and they follow Jesus. They left everything. What allowed for that response? Simply put, these men were available. They were willing and available to do the work. They were ready for such an opportunity. They were willing and ready to leave family and friends and even the comforts of their job to follow Jesus. Now, this wasn't something that was all that uncommon. Again, history and culture will tell us that it was not all that uncommon for a rabbi to find disciples and to take them uh, for some years of some training and some teaching, and then maybe for them to come back if, if uh, uh, rabbinical uh, ministry was not something that uh, would fit them to go back to their roles as fishermen and, and whatever 
jobs they may have. And so these guys are being called by the new rabbi in town. And they were available. And that begs the question this morning, are we available? Are we, when Jesus comes, able to say, yes, Jesus, my schedule's open for you. Yes, Jesus, if you're calling me to give a a special gift or or to fulfill the needs of someone, uh, my resources are available. We live lives that have such little margin for anything else. And so many of us, time and time again, are being called to serve God, and our response is an honest one. I wish I could, but I don't have the time. I wish I could, but I don't have the resources. I wish I could, but I don't have what I need to be able to give to you. And you're honest, but in that honesty, we're missing it. Jesus calls us to be ready. He told, Paul told the uh, disciple Timothy that we must be ready in season and out of season. And you say, well, that was with regards to preaching. I would say it's not just preaching, it's all ministry. Because we never know what God may call us to. And the last thing that he wants to hear is that we're busy because we're doing things that are temporal when he is calling us to things that which are eternal. These men were willing to give up all of that and be available for God. Will we? Next, we see that they needed to be spiritual. What would cause these men to drop their nets and to follow Jesus? Just to do that just like that? As I said, the answer probably is in verses 14 and 15. These men, no doubt, had heard of Jesus, had probably heard his teaching, and they had bought into it. And they hadn't just bought into it as a Sunday morning or a Saturday morning Sabbath uh, thing. But it had permeated their lives. And they were ready to do it at, when that rabbi came to their workplace. They were ready. They were available. Because their spirituality didn't end at 847 North Route 47 in Sugar Grove. But it went to their homes. It went to their workplaces. It engaged their friendships. It engaged every part of their life. Brothers and sisters, if we are going to be true disciples of God, our walks with God can't end in this building. But it must go throughout all facets of our lives. Our work, our fellow workers need to see our Christianity. Our children need to see our Christianity neighbors and friends and even acquaintances and strangers should be able to walk away from an experience with us and say, those people are walking and talking like Jesus. These disciples understood what it meant to give up their lives. They understood what it meant to live as as people that understood that the kingdom of God was at hand. Are we? Are we? going to be those type of spiritual individuals that both in church and in life are living lives ready to receive that call. The final thing is that they were teachable. Verse 18 and 20 says twice that they followed him. The word followed there is to cleave to another, conforming to their example. That's what the disciples were doing. 
I might add that that's what all disciples need to do. To follow is not just to say that I like your teaching, I like your sermons, I like the music that you played, Jesus, at your little outreaches, but that they were going to follow him and they were literally going to cleave to him. They were going to connect themselves with him and draw close to to him. And then they would conform to his example. Luke tells us that when a student is fully taught, they become like their teacher. They sound like their teacher. They speak like their teacher. They live like their teacher. And when the disciples made the decision that we were going to follow him, Peter, Andrew, James, and John said, we are going to walk like Jesus. We're going to talk like Jesus. We're going to live like Jesus. And here's the amazing thing. They had no idea what was coming, but they were willing to follow because they were teachable. They saw in Jesus and in his words something that was different, probably very similar to the response of the people. What is this new teaching? And with authority, what they encountered in Jesus was something so different. And likewise, just as those disciples are, we need to be teachable. We need to be willing to be able to say to Jesus, Jesus, I know it's going to take some time. I know I'm going to blow it. I know I'm going to be sticking my foot in my mouth so many different times on so many different occasions. But my goal, my desire in life is for you to teach me. And so that after you have taught me and worked me over, and I'll tell you that that, that, that degree of following Jesus takes a lifetime. It takes a lifetime. And what Jesus will do is he will teach us to be like him to walk like him and to talk like him and to act as he did, to respond as he did. But it's something that we have to be willing to receive. John Stott says of all of this with regards to the calling of the first disciples and a reminder to us today that Jesus never lowered his standards or modified his conditions to make his call more readily acceptable. He asked his disciples and he asked every disciple since to give their thoughtful and total commitment to Jesus. Nothing less will do. At its simplest, Christ's call was follow me. And to follow Christ is to renounce all lesser loyalties. Jesus is calling us. And he's calling us to leave some things. And to be faithful and available and spiritual and teachable. And when we do that, Jesus will take us and he will move us from being office people to being evangelists. He will take us from being workers on a construction site to being people that build the kingdom of God. He will take caterers and he will take them from feeding uh, physically the food that is needed for a couple hours. And he will make them those that will feed people for a lifetime. God wants to use you, but you have to be willing to follow him. These men said yes. Will you say yes as well? Notice the next thing, and that is that Jesus then moves, and it says immediately, as soon as they left, uh, left there, they, they went off to Capernaum. And it's there that Jesus interacts with problem people. Right away after he calls his disciples, he moves them right into ministry. Notice that there isn't any um, stopping and saying, okay, let me give you the basics. 
The B-I-B-L-E, yes, that's the book for me. I stand upon the word of God, the B-I-B-L-E. You got that. Okay, Father, Son, Holy Spirit. I'll tell you much more about that later, but you've got that. He doesn't go through a theology class. And some of us think that, well, theology and, and knowing information is good. They jump right into ministry. And they observe what Jesus is doing. And the first thing that we see is he interacts with, with some problem people. He goes to Capernaum. Capernaum was the largest city around the city of Galilee. It was a Roman a hub of activity and commerce. Uh, there was a military base there, so there was a great amount of Roman authority in that place. But due to the Romans' effect to that city, it was a place of debauchery and sin. And they go to the synagogue, and some have asked, what is a synagogue? Synagogue was a local place of worship. It wasn't a temple, but it was where religious activities would take place. Most synagogues had no local rabbi who would preach and teach. They had leaders, and the leaders there uh, would uh, share not from the law of the prophets, the law and the prophets, but much of the synagogue teaching was around things like the Talmud and the Mishnah, which were man-made books that were literally commentaries on the law of Moses. And so the law of Moses would say this, and they would give page after page after page of all these rules and, and regulations that were invented by these men to be able to tell people this is how holy living was to be done. And Jesus comes in, and it says in verse 21 and 22 that he enters into the city and he begins to teach. And Jesus teaching the synagogues is something different than they've ever heard before. They hear this teaching, and it's teaching, I believe with all my heart, because of what the rest of the gospel writers say, that Jesus wasn't teaching from the Talmud or the Mishnah. He was teaching from the Word of God. And let me tell you something. Pulpits that teach man-made thoughts will do nothing. They may tickle the ear of the listener, but they will not change lives. Notice when Jesus preached the living and acting, active word of God, people were amazed and they were changed. And I'll tell you, that's why we preach the word of God here. It may seem old fashioned, it may seem out of date, but it is the only thing that is the hope for sinful people in our world today. And so what happens? You start preaching the truth and people will come. But here's something we need to know. People have baggage. And the first group of people that come, I would like to entitle them as harmful people. They're harmful people. In verses 21 through 27, Jesus encounters a demon-possessed individual. Now, I won't uh, spend a lot of time here. I don't have the time, uh, but there will be other opportunities in Mark because Jesus will do this over and over again in the Gospel of Mark. And we'll deal with some of the theology of demon possession later. But I want to look at it just as, as, as it's been written, that Jesus encounters this demon-possessed person. And here Jesus doesn't push him away or say, you know what, that's a troublemaker. I'm not going to deal with that individual. He doesn't ignore that individual, but he responds out of love and compassion. But notice that in dealing with these individuals, that Jesus addresses them, but he addresses them very different than he would another individual. Now, the reason why I say they were harmful is a demon-possessed person had nothing to bring to Jesus other than trouble. That demon didn't want to come and say, well done, Jesus, great job dealing with the text. Or, wow, I'm glad you're here to minister to all of these hurting people. The demon in that individual, or the multiple demons that it says, desire was to bring chaos, havoc, and destruction. 
And I would tell you, while we don't see as much demon possession, especially in this part of the world, there are a lot of people who truly do play the part well, who come to destroy the work and the ministry of our God and our Savior. The Bible calls them in the New Testament savage wolves who come to devour the flock. How are we to deal with such people? Here's the thing. When Jesus dealt with this uh, uh, demon-possessed individual first, we see that he held his ground. You don't give up ground to the enemy. You hold your ground. And that's what Jesus did. Nowhere does Jesus stutter in his speech. Nowhere does he cower in fear. He stands strong. He never gives an inch. You give the enemy an inch and he will take a mile. Jesus says, don't do that. And I would say when we deal with harmful individuals, we never give them the inch. He knew their plans. He knew what they wanted to do. And he was going to stop them even before they would have a word to speak. Second, he set the terms of engagement. He understood that if he allowed this individual to speak, anarchy would become the the sport of that synagogue. And it was unbecoming in the ministry of Jesus to allow everybody to have their own way. And it's unhealthy in the life of the church. And Jesus says that we, especially as leaders, need to address those who are harming the church and to not even permit them to speak. Why? Because it's like a cancer. Think about what would have happened if Jesus would have said, okay, I know you're demon-possessed. Demons, tell us what your issues are and your struggles are. Chaos would have ensued. And Jesus says, we're not going to let that happen because what you're bringing to this is going to defile the whole group of people. Finally, I want you to see that Jesus addressed the problem without fighting the person. Notice in that text, he says, be quiet. And he says, come out of him. But he never says, you dummy, how'd you get that demon inside of you? Where have you been hanging around? What what, what have you been doing? You don't do that kind of stuff, you moron. He doesn't say anything like that. That would have been me if I played the part of Jesus. Come on. You should have the demon stay and you should be tormented because you're the one, you're the fool that dabbled with that stuff and engaged with that stuff. And and so so I'm just going to leave you as you are. Jesus doesn't do that at all. He addresses the problem. He doesn't per se destroy the person. And when we deal with people that are harmful to the church, it is so easy for us to go after the person, to badmouth the person, to speak maliciously about that individual. But we shouldn't. We should do what Jesus does, and that is that he speaks to the problem. He says, hey, you know who I am, and I'm going to tell you to be quiet, and I'm going to tell you, demon, get out of him now. And notice what happens when you preach with authority, when you set the terms of engagement, when you hold your ground, and when you address the problem and not the person, miraculous things take place. The demon comes out of the individual. He is set in his right mind, and people look and they're amazed. Look at this, a new teaching and with authority. He gives orders to evil spirits, and they obey him. And it says, news traveled quickly over the whole region of Galilee. And we could sit there and we could bask in that. But notice what happens in verse 29. As soon as they left the synagogue, they went with James and John to the house of Simon and Andrew. And Simon's mother-in-law was in bed with a fever. And they told Jesus about her. 
So he went to her, took her hand, and helped her up. The fever left her, and she began to wait on them. It says, that evening after sunset, the people brought to Jesus all the sick and demon-possessed. And the whole town gathered at the door, and Jesus healed many who had various diseases, and he drove out many spirits. The next thing is, is as we've addressed the harmful people, is that Jesus ministered to the hurting people. Jesus addressed those that are hurting He dealt with those who were ailing with all types of conditions. Imagine all of these people, a whole region of Sugar Grove coming to you with their problems. That's not fun. Help me. Take care of me. This hurts and that hurts. Help me with this or that. How exhausting it must have been for God. And again, God doesn't belittle them. God doesn't tell them to suck it up. He serves them and he heals them. And he not only heals those that are close to him, Simon's mother-in-law, but he heals people that he had never met before. And it seems that he again addresses the need. And I want to give just some quick observations that I think are important for us with this point. Number one, we must always remember we are a hurting people. Where there are people, there are hurts and pains. We have issues, we have concerns, we have pains and we have problems. And any gospel ministry that's going to be effective for Christ must address these things. We can't as a church say, well, we're saved and and we're just going to learn about God and study God. and, And if you have issues, just stay quiet about them because those aren't concerning to us. If you have pains and if you have issues in your life, you keep those quiet because those are going to distract us from the work that we have. No, the, the ministry that Jesus had was to serve those that were in need to minister to them. And we as a church must minister to those who are in need, not push them off to the sides. We need to minister to them. Number two observation, preaching is an essential component to any healthy ministry as it was to Jesus's ministry. But hear me out, it isn't the only component. It's important. And I may say it is essential, but it's not the only one. Jesus didn't just say, well, I'm a preacher. Don't bring me your issues. Don't bring me your concerns. My job is just to preach. Understand this. If you ever see me as your preacher, never leaving this pulpit and coming and spending time with you, then I don't deserve to be behind this pulpit. Any good preacher is one who teaches the word of God and then comes around you and hugs you and loves you and ministers to you. If you ever see the elders say, well, we're elders, we're important. We've got things to do in the conference room, big things to talk about and don't have time to hug you, then it's time that you rebuke your elders. We need to be serving and loving. Is there a place for vision? Is there a place for dealing with big things? Yes, but it should never neglect the needs of those around them. Third, we need to make a way for the gospel. Third, we make a way for the gospel when we minister to the needs of others. What was Jesus doing? He was making a way where at that point there was no way. You start ministering to those people that are in their most deepest and darkest places and you minister to their needs and you know what will happen? They'll start listening to your preaching just a little bit more. Nobody knows how much you know until they know how much you care. Who came up with that? Jesus. He was the starter of that. I care for you, 
and I care for your bodily struggles and your, and your issues that are affecting your body today. But let me tell you what's more important, and that is the spiritual issues and struggles that you're having. And I've got words for that as well. The final observation that I have is that it's important for us because we can look at the needs of this world and we can become so, just so guilty, feel so guilty of, of not addressing them. Understand this. Jesus, even Jesus, was unable to address all of those needs that were around him. I, I know there's some theological things there. Was Jesus unable to? Jesus made a decision, and he left some of his prerogatives. And in his humanity, he ministered to many people. But never in the text does it say all of Galilee was healed. It never says that all of Galilee had their issues resolved. What Jesus addressed were the issues that were before him. And as a church, we can't resolve all of the issues. And that's why we're thankful to partner with other ministries. But what we can do is address the issues that come before us. And so we need to address those. We live in a hurting world. And the only way the world's going to know that we're truly all about Christ is that we minister to those that are hurting. When a devastating plague swept across the ancient world in the third century, Christians were the only ones, and this is by a secular um, historian, Christians were the only ones who cared for the sick when they did at the risk of contracting the plague themselves. Meanwhile, non-Christians were throwing infected members of their own families into the streets even before they died in order to protect themselves from the disease. It's when we live like that that people will desire to hear the gospel. A day in the life of Jesus sees that he goes after partners and he works with problem people. The final thing that we see, and I'm running out of time, and that is that Jesus went to a private place. He went to a private place. After a hectic day of ministry, you would think that Jesus would say, you know what, guys, let's go home, let's put our feet up, and let's call it a day. I'm up for a sabbatical. It's been busy. But it says he got up early and he went away in solitude to pray. There are three things that I want to pull out of this quickly. Number one, he, this privacy allowed for three things. Number one, it allowed for a time of reflection. Number two, it allowed for a strong relationship with his father. And number three, involved a re-engagement to do more ministry. Now, let me address this just in a couple moments. Jesus gets away. Why does Jesus get away? Because in his humanity, he needed to settle his heart. There had been a lot of things going on. He was tired. He was tired physically. And no doubt, he was spent spiritually. And he needed to just get back and reflect. What have I been a part of? What has gone on? And, and we as Christians need to do that as well. Because two things can happen. And two things could have happened with Jesus in his humanity. He could have walked away and began to reflect by himself and say, my goodness, I'm only one person. How will I ever address all these needs? They just keep coming and coming and coming. And despair could have filled our Savior. A second thing could have come if he would have just sat and, and, and thought on his own in his humanity. And that is, wow, what a great guy I am. I show up people are healed. I show up and people love my teaching. Can I tell you, 
Those two things are the things that impact me on Monday morning, every Monday morning. The devil comes and says, you're a loser, Badal. You blew it this week. You got up and you preached and you don't even live it. And they're not changed by it anyway. And I come to a place and I say, man, what am I doing? I'm investing, engaging all this time and I'm a hypocrite and and I'm a loser and they don't even care. And then I go to Jesus. And Jesus says, stop that. And then there are times where things have really gone well the day before and, 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 and I just begin to think, boy, they're just so lucky to have me. Do they know how good they've got it? You really preached a good one there. I wish I could reach my back so I could pat it. And spending time with God reflects. And he says, not by might, nor by power, but by my spirit, says the Lord of hosts. Jesus went and he heard that from his father. And we need to hear it as well. It gave time for a strong relationship with his father. Jesus loved serving people. He loved to minister to people. But he loved spending time with his father. And the best way to illustrate this Amanda and I love 8.31 p.m. of every night. It is great to have three boys under the age of nine. It is great to see them all in bed. It is great to sit. We usually don't sit. We're washing dishes, vacuuming, and doing all of that. But at least we're doing it alone. And together. We are doing it together. But alone. It is so good to get the kids out of our hair. Because with kids, there are problems. With their kids, there are chaos. With one another, there's intimacy, there's love, there's affection. There's Amanda telling Tim what he didn't do. There's all of that good stuff. When Jesus ministered with his father, there was intimacy. There was alone time. There was an opportunity to to, uh, converse together and to speak with one another with nobody around. If it was important to Jesus, that conversation and prayer needs to be important to us. And finally, it was what was needed to re-engage in ministry. Notice what the text says, and I'll close. It says that the people came looking for him. And he says, hey, we're going to go somewhere else. So the nearby villages, so I can preach there. That's why I've come. And it says, so he traveled throughout Galilee, preaching in their synagogues and driving out demons. Let me tell you something. If we are not connected to our God in heaven, each and every day ministry will become impossible. And Jesus, the God of the universe, incarnated in human flesh, understood the, 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 the incredible need to cry out to his God and to depend on the, the Spirit to give him the power to deal with the day before him and then to fill up again so he can have another day. We are not superheroes, brothers and sisters. We are ministers. We are people that have the treasure of Almighty God in jars of clay. And the jars of clay need work done. The jars of clay need refreshment and to be filled back up again so that we can go out. And if we think we're just going to do ministry and ministry and ministry, it will lead to utter burnout and we will be unfaithful in the job that God has given us. Jesus shows us that a life that we should live should be being the followers and disciples that are ready to live out our full potential in Jesus. We are to deal with even the problem people of our world and we need to spend some time in privacy, alone with God. 
A day in the life of Jesus. Hopefully, a day in the life of each of us. Let's pray. Father God, we thank you for your word. We thank you for the synopsis of of the way that you live life. Oh Lord, I pray that I would live this way. That I wouldn't just uh, create a day that, that works for me, but that I would put myself under the lordship of you with every detail of my life. Lord, I pray the same for my brothers and sisters. Lord, I pray this would be a personal template of what ministry should look like in our own lives. Lord, corporately, I pray that this will be a template of what our ministry as a church will look like. Because, Lord, we know that your son did all things to glorify you. And if we follow his example with humble and contrite hearts, we will glorify you in all that we do. But, Lord, I would be remiss not to say that we need your spirit's power. So, Lord, fill us. Allow us to get rid of the sin that entangles us. Allow us to get rid of the things that distract us. And allow us to be filled by that spirit so that when we are called to do ministry, we'll do it. That we're called to serve even the most difficult of people. We'll do it with love and compassion. That when we're called to turn off the TV and, and put away the entertainment and the internet and all those things, that sometime, whether it's early in the morning or it's late at night, that each and every day we would quiet our hearts and we would interact and relate with you. Lord, it's there that lives are changed. So Lord, we're going to live to that. We're going to commit ourselves to that. And in doing so, we might bring glory and honor to your name. Lord, send us forth from this place now to our ABFs and to our classes and to the lives that we live. Let the teaching transform every part of us so that we can transform those around us. In Christ's name we pray.